case of this episode, the podcast about trauma and television. I'm your host Contrera and in this episode I was lucky enough to talk to Dr Karen O'Donnell about trauma. Karen is a research fellow at St John's College Durham University which for our American listeners is a very prestigious college in the northern part of the UK. Karen works in the theology department where she specialises in researching the effects and outcomes of trauma, which I can imagine is probably quite a difficult job. I speak to Karen about what the different types of trauma are, how these manifest themselves in real life and on screen, where film and TV are going a little bit wrong in their descriptions of trauma and the woeful gender differences in depictions of trauma. Then Karen talks to us about the shows that do justice to trauma survivors. We dedicate this episode to Dr Christine Blasey Ford and before we start the conversation I want to apologise if anyone thinks that perhaps I'm laughing too much and taking this all a little bit too lightly when we talk about the very important subject of trauma. I actually copied a tweet from um, a writer called Caroline Daria Franca on Twitter and when she talks about Dr Ford's testimony at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, she says, the way she keeps trying to find lighter moments in all this, moments to make this all feel more human, is so familiar and awful and crushing. And I kind of think perhaps that that's what a lot of us do when we're talking about something as important and distressing as suffering trauma. I go to making light of everything and being humorous when really it's to just try and make this seem more human and deal with it better. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. It's educational, there are moments of lightness and it was a real pleasure to speak to Dr Karen. And here's our chat. So I think the first thing that we need to discuss is what exactly is trauma from your perspective? Or in the, just in the mind, 
liquids in both at the same time. Mm-hmm. It usually causes, causes three kind of ruptures to take place or three kind of breaks. So the first one is like the rupture of a body. So that might be in the case of rape, the physical rupturing of a body with uh, sexual penetration. Um, it might be rupturing of a body with a bullet or an injury, or it might be the rupturing of a body in a more psychological kind of way. Um, the second one is rupture of time. So a classic kind of symptom of trauma is like the flashbacks, the hallucinations, nightmares, things where the past kind of keeps trying to intrude on the present. And we see that loads in the way in which trauma is depicted in film. Mm-hmm. And the third one is like a rupture in language. So people can't talk about it. So very often the trauma survivor is almost silent, particularly when it comes to talking about any kind of trauma that they've experienced. That sounds like that trauma covers myriad subjects and myriad different um, uh, behaviours and attitudes and that you might be a sufferer of trauma and not necessarily uh, display symptoms from all three categories. Yes, we usually say that you probably experience all three of those things, but, but most people would display either the rupture of time or the rupture of language much more, one much more so than the other. Um, so um, if you think about a kind of classic depiction of the post-war veteran, mm-hmm. um, shown in the movies as being, you know, kind of violent and they're kind of dehumanised, um, they can... Um, they can often kind of be really unpredictable kind of characters, but that's only one way in which trauma um, manifests, and it's a particularly masculine way in which trauma manifests. Um, so when it comes to women's experience of trauma, uh, that's very, very different mm. to the post-war masculine male experience of trauma. Um, and how would that be uh, shown? How, what, how do you typically see that? In women, mm. in films, um, well, actually, you see it really badly, um, and I would uh, I would argue that it's only really in the last kind of ten years or so that we've started to see better depictions of female trauma. Um, women don't tend to be violent; they might be, but they tend to be um, they tend to probably experience things like guilt and shame much more strongly than um, kind of the tendency towards violent behaviour, mm. um, and uh, some of the kind of better examples of women's trauma in the last 10 or 15 years or so um, really don't shy away from the fact that there's no quick fix for, for trauma that actually if you've got trauma if you're experiencing PTSD you're probably going to be experiencing it for the rest of your life the process of recovery is um, is, a, is like a cycle so it's not like an A to B you start here you do all this you get to the end and then you're better it's much mm. more of a you'll continue to go around this cycle probably for the rest of your life and that's that's for any. It, 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 you're saying that's for any gender. So oh, even yeah. though it's depicted with men that there might be an, a violent, aggressive act or, or something that they do to act out, um, it, it, even though it, it's different on on film and TV, let's say for example how it's depicted, uh, PTSD for example could last for the rest of your life, irrespective of how it comes out, which form of trauma you're experiencing. Yeah, so if we think about them, so instead of talking about recovery from trauma, we try um, in trauma studies we try and talk about post-traumatic remaking, which is okay. a better phrase. Uh, so recovery implies that one day you'll be fixed, mm. but actually the process of remaking.
making actually is an ongoing process of how you how do you put yourself back together after something like this has happened. So um, that really goes through three stages, but like I said, it's not really like A, B, C. It's no. more like we'll continue to cycle around these stages till we get there. So in the first instance, you can't recover from trauma until you're in a place of safety. So you don't start to recover if you're still in a war zone. You don't start to recover if you're still being raped. You have to be in a place of safety. Um, and then secondly, you have to construct a narrative. You have to be able to start to talk about what's happened to you. And that narrative has to be witnessed. It has to happen in the company of other people. So in for the you know post-war veteran, that might, it might be in a veteran support group. For you know a woman kind of coming to terms with sexual assault, it might be in the context of friends that hear and believe her, which, you know, even this week we've seen mm. a woman being believed about sexual assault is, is not it's not a given. It's um, incredibly pertinent for us to be talking about this in the current time. So a question I'd like to ask now, because you've just kind of brought me up on it, is uh, is there any other vocabulary that we should be using? Um, I've heard a lot recently about um, not necessarily calling people who've experienced sexual assault as victims, and I can imagine that's probably similar with experiences of any kind of trauma. Yeah, so I try and um, shy away from using the language of victim. I think it's um, it's not helpful for, for the kind of outsider of how you perceive an individual. Um, it's not helpful for the individual that's experienced trauma either. So I would always use the term trauma survivor rather than trauma victim um, because fundamentally they have survived. If they're here to talk about it afterwards, if they're, if they're still living, then they are trauma survivors, no matter how they feel. Um, and then the post-traumatic remaking, um, I would use instead of trauma recovery, just because I think we are, we, you know, particularly talking in the context of films, we want the happy ending. We want the, you know, oh, and then she went through this, and then she, re you know, the final stage of trauma recovery, which I, I didn't really talk about, is, is kind of reconnecting with society and the way in which you make your trauma a part of yourself, a gift in the way and how you move forward. And that sounds really nice, but the reality is that some days you might feel like that and some days you really don't. And, and there isn't, you know, a lovely Hollywood ending to this story. It's, it's a really crappy ending that... <laughs> over and over again until maybe you feel a bit better some days than others but you can continue so so let's uh, go through those again because i interrupted you so the the first step is so it's uh, being in a place of safety, safety. and the then the second step is discussing it uh, with uh, an audience who believe you acknowledge what you're saying yeah um, and so we usually call that kind of constructing a narrative it doesn't actually have to be a true narrative which is slightly contagious given the kind of things that we've talked about earlier mm. um in terms of you know ford and Kavanaugh discussions going on um but there is a sense in which that story needs to be strong enough to carry you forward not true enough to carry you forward yeah. so it needs to be a, a narrative that helps you make sense of what's happened and uh, mostly it's true or broadly true um i'm not saying that trauma survivors make stuff up mm. i'm certainly not saying that um, but the third element is, is kind of reconnection with society. So um, if kind of detaching yourself from society, from your family, from your support network is a symptom of trauma, then coming back into friendship, back into communication um, is a, as a symptom of, of this kind of post-traumatic remaking. And actually, I'm going to talk about uh, a couple of really great examples of women's trauma in film. And both of those do that reconnection thing really well. That second one, I automatically thought of Life of Pi. Have you seen or read the book Life of Pi? 
don't think I've seen the film. No, it's um in in the, automatically in terms of the trauma. Uh, the, the whole point of the whole film, and it really aggravated me at the time, is that at the very end of the film, you don't go all the and the book, you don't know um, if the story is true, and uh, the author and the narrator ask us, "What do we want to be true?" And I think that that's probably a really recent example, interesting example of that second part where. Film, TV, and all of the arts are about constructing a narrative, and we need to remake a story to make it fit into two hours or ten episodes. Um, so that was just one that came to mind for me. Now, unfortunately, we've got to talk about all the examples of where Hollywood and the BBC and all other production companies are not adequately displaying or interpreting trauma effectively on the screen. Yeah, and. Um... So perhaps I could if I start by saying actually men have had a much easier time than women in this. Uh, so basically the experience of Vietnam for for male veterans and, and at that at that time women are not really going they're not really going to war. If they are it's in very small numbers. Mm-hmm. So the most of the people that come back from the Vietnam War in the seventies and eighties are blokes and they come back and that's the first time that um post traumatic stress disorder is, is kind of properly diagnosed and um, starts to be presented on TV, you know, where people they're not shell shocked, they're not um, they're not weak, they're not um, you know they're just making really poor choices. And it starts to be acknowledged as something that can't be helped as a proper kind of psychiatric yes. disorder. Things like the Deer Hunter, which actually is quite early. Um, I think it's the early seventies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the character of Nick in the Deer Hunter, it, it's a really it's a really good depiction of trauma. Um, you know, he's he's got this antisocial behaviour, he prefers kind of solitude, he's emotionally detached, and that, that's really good. Uh, sadly, that's not really what happens for women, which is interesting because the 70s are also a time of kind of the rise of the women's movement. There starts to be a recognition that it's not all right for a bloke to batter his wife, actually. <laughs> Maybe she, she doesn't deserve to stay in that kind of relationship. Um, but it takes a long time for that to make its way into TV. So there's a couple of um, really common tropes in the way in which women's trauma is depicted really badly. Um, And I thought I would just highlight them and then you'll probably be able to think of lots more examples. (laughs) So one of the things that happens when people experience PTSD is that their bodies go into this hyper-arousal state. So for blokes, that tends to be depicted as them being really violent. And for women, that tends to be depicted in a kind of um, let's just have sex kind of way. So, one of the really putting it out of their mind is it that behaviour to push it away? So it's connected. It's it's not a completely unreasonable depiction, but it's not the, it's not the most common way in which women tend to deal with trauma. And um, so trauma. So this kind of hyper arousal sometimes gets kind of caught up with the death drive, and so you need to prove you're alive, yes. and you might feel like you need to go out and have sex to prove that you're fully alive. Um, most women who experience trauma are not on the battlefield. The most common trauma for women is um, is, is abuse or sexual assault, rape. It's it's in that kind of area rather mm. than war zone. So if you think of um, Thelma and Louise, which is one of my, I love it. It's, it's such a great film. Yeah. Um, Gina Davis's character Thelma, um, she experiences an attempted rape quite early on in the film, um, and it's. Um, 
she's up against a car in a dark car park and I think um, somebody kind of interrupts and that's the only way in which she is not raped. Um, almost immediately after that, they pick up a hitchhiker, JD, it's Brad Pitt's character, and she has wild sex with him in the bedroom. It's one of the first sex scenes I ever saw as a pretty young teenager. <laughs> and I can remember at the time fancying Brad Pitt quite a lot, but actually as I've become more aware of um, women's experience of rape and the way in which trauma works, I found that trope to be quite disturbing. So I was thinking that uh, you're going my way or they're going your way. I think we're going to Oklahoma City. Boys, hey boys, uh, this young man here is on his way back to school. And I thought since we're going the same direction, you know, we could give him a ride, huh? It's probably not a good idea. Please. Did you see how polite he is? He's pretty sweet. Thelma? What? saw it really recently in Bodyguard on the BBC. So mm -hmm. Keely Hall's character, the um, Home Secretary, she's in a really bloody uh, shootout in her car. Her driver is killed and uh, her bodyguard um, eventually gets her to safety, but she is absolutely traumatised by what's happened. You know, she's covered in blood, she's, um, she's shot, she has to leave her home. Um, almost immediately, the narrative puts her straight into having sex with the bodyguard. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting is that actually later on in that episode, you see his PTSD come to the fore as he strangles her when she goes to wake up in the middle of the night. It's that nightmare, that flashback that comes mm -hmm. through. Uh, but the hyperarousal for women as this post-trauma kind of trope is really often depicted by immediately throwing them into sex. Um, and, and that's just just doesn't really ring true with anyone who experiences um, PTSD. Um, it might be more of a long-term coping solution, way of trying to connect with people, uh, but in those immediate aftermath of trauma, that is a very unusual thing to expect a trauma survivor to do. So do we think that that's a directorial choice then? If we know that from the facts and from your research that that isn't what actually happens, I suppose the only justification that the film and TV industry has is that um, it's a up and down in the plot, moving the plot along. Because I, I can definitely see how um, there would be, a director would want to make the choice where they uh, use the audience's high tension and convert that into something which might be seen as more pleasurable to watch and it's unfortunately making a really negative association between a mere uh, sexual assault experience and a positive sexual experience particularly because I think it may be a juxtaposition between whoever the potential rapist or attacker is and the person who the female character then has sex with. It's almost an establishment of that male character as a good guy because very much JD in Thelma and Louise is Brad Pitt saying I'm a nice good guy I'm just you know I'm, I'm just on the road and doing my own thing but I'm not here to ever hurt you and, that, and that's very much like displayed all the way through Thelma and Louise. Bodyguard's a bit different because there's a whole there's, you're right there's trauma on on many sides in that and there, there could be a whole episode with us just talking about bodyguard. One of the things that I find problematic about that then is the utilisation of women's trauma as a plot device. Absolutely. That 
not they're not we're not interested in the trauma in and of itself we're not interested in exploring it actually what we want to do is use it to move the story on to something sexy to something that the viewer wants to watch something that's much more entertaining the bodyguard's really interesting because because in lots of ways it is a really uh interesting depiction of trauma particularly spoiler alert you know as it ends he ends up in therapy he ends up saying i need help and that's such a positive and um such an uncommon thing that you know there was like loads of articles about what a great interesting ending that was um mm. but it's only his trauma that's respected it's not hers yes because his is the because i think because it's it's almost the inciting incident in bodyguard is everything that he went through both before the incident on the train in the first episode and, 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 and obviously, um, Jeb Mercurio wants to talk about the male experience in uh, protecting the country and warfare and all of those kind of things. And unfortunately, I do believe that is at the expense of the different kind of trauma that Keely Hall's character goes through in terms of both the stress of her job and also those particular events. Yeah. And so I think what's interesting is that you could have there are other ways to get them into bed together that didn't require <laughs> that to be preceded by trauma and and just because she's experienced that trauma doesn't mean that they couldn't have had um, a meaningful non-sexual relationship so that's what i would have preferred if we're going to talk about bodyguard i was not as interested once they did jump into bed together that's just about me saying i really wanted it to be this male female dynamic wasn't about traumatic events so yeah sorry as you were saying oh no i think that's so in all honesty i watched the first three episodes and i was just quite bored after they got into bed together i just yeah it did it wasn't as good definitely so that's a side issue about maybe you shouldn't have your characters jumping into bed together do you have any more examples of um bad uh trauma depiction on screen particularly with women yeah, so there's a really interesting one, and actually when I say it, you'll start thinking back again through films, you'll be like, oh my goodness, that happens here as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, the traumatic haircut. Um, <laughs> the whole trope in film and in TV um, of doing really lazy shorthand um, depiction of a woman who has experienced trauma, um, and it's just by the haircut, as if... Uh, so this makes me it makes me so frustrated. Uh, but I do a couple of examples. So Hannah in Thirteen Reasons Why, yeah. uh, as she starts to deal with the kind of traumatic experiences that she's had, like a really kind of significant moment is when she cuts her hair from being, you know, um, chest length waves yeah. to being a, an edgy bob. Um, and if you've, I don't know if you've seen the newsroom. Um, I love the newsroom. Yeah. Way more than I ought to. Um, <laughs> in the newsroom so maggie goes out to uganda she witnesses essentially the murder of a child yes. and the instead of doing any kind of real character development of what maggie has experienced and how she's dealing with the trauma we know she's traumatized because her hair is cut from long flowing blonde locks to just short choppy i think it's dyed red hair and that's supposed to you know, demonstrate her inner turmoil in a way that nothing else can. And actually, this is re it's really lazy um, writing. Um, yes. I think talking, uh, uh, I love the West Wing. I even love Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Me too. Or the newsroom. But he's so bad at writing women. And yeah. He's not interested in writing women and women's stories at all. You know, I think Mackenzie, I love Mackenzie in the newsroom, but she is 
so unfleshed out as a character right, that you don't really understand what she's she's doing there. Everyone except for Jeff Daniels' character uh, has shorter oh. shrift, I think, but particularly, yeah, Mac is. But the problem is, is that Aaron Sorkin gives these characters these silly names as well, and the female characters, and so they have alliteration, and that kind of makes them all sound like Penelope Pitstop. It's, it's as if they are a caricature. It's almost caricature. It's almost as if he knows. Um, uh, oh, yeah, the traumatic haircuts. Haircut. So there were two um, kind of examples that, I, that, that kind of came straight to my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't watch girls, but I am led to understand that one of the characters in there suffers a mental breakdown as she cuts her hair. I yes. think if you watch um, Empire Records, going back to the early 90s, um, Great film, but <laughs> does it have a traumatic haircut? I can't remember. The haircut, and it's it's so it's it's just an example of what of a way in which um, writers and directors don't bother to explore women's trauma, but just demonstrate it in such a yeah. superficial way. And and yes, I'm sure some people who do experience trauma have their haircut, mm-hmm. and it's powerfully symbolic in some way. Lots of people have tattoos, but. Yeah. Um, it's not you're not doing yourself any favors in terms of storytelling, and you're missing an opportunity to explore something that's really powerful and really interesting by simply saying, "Look, she's traumatized. Her hair was once beautiful and flowing, and now look, it's short and horrible." Yeah, let me play devil's advocate. Um, uh, visual choices are often needed to convey detail quickly, and particularly. Uh, in films where it's something that you want to inform why, and TV shows, if you want to inform why a character is behaving in a way which you may say is not usual for someone in their set of circumstances, as the viewer has seen. And then often I think that, yeah, the the haircut, part of the trope must be the flashback to some event which led to it. So I would say that I think this probably happens to male characters as well as female characters. Not necessarily the, the, the haircut, but some kind of mirror gazing, change to physical appearance. And I do think that the problem is it's isolated, it's on its own, as you said, it's the only way, the shorthand of showing the trauma. I think that, yes, it doesn't happen as frequently as we're led to believe uh, from the number of instances uh, on TV, but I think that perhaps directors could could improve on this if they just use this as part of a wider narrative on changes of behaviour and psychology. Do you agree? Yeah, I think um, I think I'd probably push back and say I think it's much more of a female trope than a male one. Um, and I think the the whilst we might see expect to see visual changes, you know, it's a visual medium um, in, in both, both the male and the female. Um, I think the the superficiality of hair, um, which I think men think is much more important than women sometimes. Well, men um, think it's more important to women, or women actually think is important to themselves. Yes, <laughs> not, that's obviously a sweeping statement. That's not true for everybody. Um, but I think it's probably playing into some kind of male fantasy about what what women are actually interested in, mm. and I. I think my problem with it is that it's rarely accompanied by any significant storytelling. Exactly. That's the problem, isn't it? It's not... The, the trope in itself is not great, because as you said, it's gendered. Although, again, to be fair, I would argue that um, more women than men have long hair, and I think it makes a more vi- visually stunning 
seeing if you have this look because it is it does seem to be these these women who have really long hair and go really short maybe having a quick trim to the shoulders doesn't give the same visual representation you you sometimes have the buzz cut don't you i think that would be the male equivalent but um i also think it's it's cultural and societal issues as well in terms of only recently are men allowed to express themselves through what they wear or wearing makeup or how they style their hair so it could be that we're dealing with a backlog of film and tv depictions that are old-fashioned and haven't caught up because i wonder if there are two issues here one it's gendered and is a problem there because it's for women more but also um if we had more male versions of this, this would still be minimising the effects of trauma. Yeah, yeah, because actually, you know, if we have a slew of films in the next 10 years where lots of traumatised men end up cutting their hair or... You heard it here first. <laughs> a, I'd be surprised. But but um, also, if that's not still not accompanied by by actual storytelling yeah. and, and kind of delving into um, ways in which... Uh, trauma can be depicted on screen mm. and there are so many ways of doing it well that uh, you know will still be um it'll still be really frustrating to watch let's talk about the positives then so i think one of the best examples um on of depicting female trauma in the last few years has been jessica jones ah um, yes which is which is brilliant in so many ways um i'm a i'm a bit of a marvel kind of fan um, and after the, um, so one of the characters that I thought about talking about in this was Black Widow, um, but mainly, I guess, as an example of how Marvel gets it so horribly wrong. Um, so, you know, there's all this kind of mystery about what she's experienced in her past. Uh, she's slut-shamed in Avengers Age of Ultron quite spectacularly, like, on multiple occasions. Mm. And it turns out that, you know, she's been sterilised and there's, not very much kind of made of this um and then you know we just kind of move on and and again we're back to her sexuality which is her biggest weapon there's a whole weird part as well about her being a ballerina as well as a hit woman isn't she at like some kind of finishing school so yeah and um but her backstory is so incredibly confusing um and and Marvel are just they were never i mean apparently there's a black widow film in the making there is it's it's yeah. I don't know what they're going to do though because we're at the end of an era after the uh, second Avengers uh, 4 movie so yeah. it's a little bit too little too late anyway as you were saying yeah so so I um, sadly didn't have very high hopes for Marvel like ever kind of getting it right with women I think they are doing better now I think some of their more recent directors have been brilliant um, but Jessica Jones is brilliant obviously she um, throughout seasons one and two she is experiencing ptsd after being mind controlled by kilgrave the um the villain in the first season um and that mind control has led to her doing um being made to do awful things against her will um including having sex with him which i i don't think you can describe as anything other than rape mm. depending regardless of whether he makes her enjoy it or not uh, she's not in control of her body, so it's it's. I would depict, call it a depiction of rape, and we see those kind of really classic PTSD symptoms. So she's uh, she suffers from flashbacks, she's continually kind of hallucinating and um, having these kind of memories of the past intrude on the present. Um, she's detached from the world around her. She turns to alcohol as a coping mechanism. 
Um, they're all really um, very authentic um, depiction. Obviously, it's a supernatural series, and some of it's exaggerated for um, impact, but that's all pretty authentic, I think. What I think is interesting about Jessica Jones is that she also almost plays with gender. She plays with gender role in the sense that she's experiencing the trauma in a way that we've already just discussed about how, you know, uh, men were perceived on, on film, on camera. And she also is a misanthrope and she, she has all of these non, uh, you know, that's women, womanly feminine traits, but is still very much a woman. I don't ever feel like um, they're making her into a male, which would be so easy when you have all the other people that, you know, Luke Cage and Iron Fist and all of that, Daredevil, who she's with. Um, she still seems to have some femininity. Uh, maybe it's her long hair. Um, uh, uh, even though she has taken away all of the aspects of uh, traditional girliness on screen, maybe the depiction is so good because of this gamut she is experiencing or she is uh, visually showing on film everything that you talked about in terms of those well at least the one and two stages i don't think she's quite got to the third stage she reconnects with with uh, her best friend yeah one of the things that is interesting about her is that she um she's not defined by these kind of traditional gender stereotypes mm. how we respond to trauma and, and for that we can only really credit the writers because it's it's excellent the way in which they don't pigeonhole her. But the thing that I wanted to really pick up on as being um, one of the standout um, things, elements of this for me, is that Jessica Jones demonstrates that post-traumatic remaking, getting better, is a long and arduous process. Absolutely. She's in the season one. She's not better at the end of season two. She's not. She's not recovered. She's not healed. She is. Uh, sorry, better is probably the wrong word. She. She is making progress. She isn't miraculously healed. She's not. Um. You know, back to whatever she was before she experienced. Um. The mind control. And I. And Jessica Jones really gets this right. She's in a continuous process of remaking, and there's no quick fix. No. And I think the other thing that um Jessica Jones does is that it. Um. Hers isn't the only trauma on display in the film, in the TV series. So mm -hmm. there is um, a support group of other people that have been um, controlled by Kilgrave and they meet together and they talk to each other about what happened to them. That's part of that constructing a narrative, having it heard by people that believe you. Um, and then there's the character Malcolm who um, who says to, to Jessica that at one point that um, just by being with her is helping him recover. So actually being connected to somebody um, is helping him kind of work through what what has happened to the addiction that, that Kilgrave's kind of mind controlled him into. Um, being in community, even if it is with Jessica, uh, is part of the process of helping him recover. And I, so I think that, that Marvel, the writers of Jessica Jones, uh, you, should, you should get some big credit for the way in which they depicted this because actually it's quite radical mm. and and it's um, doing a really good job of de depicting quite authentically what post-traumatic remaking looks like and how long and hard it is. Mm. And this is where I chip in and say there are female directors and female writers on Jessica Jones, so I wonder if that's part of the reason why. I call, texted, emailed. I didn't want it. 
to go down that way, but it had to be done. It wasn't your call? Yes, it was, because you couldn't make it. You couldn't see how dangerous she was. I'm fascinated by what you're about to say because I'm I would have thought Stranger Things isn't a good option. So um I will sit back and let you tell me why it is. So so I think um it's the character of Elle, Eleven, that I want to talk about. Um she's not she's not the only female character, obviously, uh, that experiences something traumatic in Stranger Things, and I don't think necessarily uh, you know, Barb gets short shrift. I, you know, bring back Barb. Um, <laughs> I think they do get some things, some things quite right with Elle. So obviously, she has experienced the first eleven years of her life in this um, horrific experimentation. She's a lab rat, out mm. um, of human affection, put in terrifyingly dangerous situations as part of the psychic experiments that are done on her, mm. and so. Um, so throughout season one and, and even season two, um, she experiences flashbacks. She has severe anxiety attacks. Um, she's really <laughs> Which involve her using her powers that are outside of her control. It's a very good visual representation of her anxiety and panic. Yeah. And, um, and obviously, of course, it's supernatural. It's heightened for, for excitement and impact. But... Um, actually, it's, it's explained quite visually, something quite um, um, indescribable that's happening inside trauma victims quite often. Sorry, I've used that word victims, I'm trauma survivors quite often. It makes me feel um, better that you struggle as well, because we all want to use the vernacular, but it's, it's, this is just an age-old thing of using the word victim, so trauma survivor. Survivor, yeah. So she um, she's detached, you know, she doesn't trust the boys easily when they find her she um she doubts whether they mean her good um and she has a severe sense of guilt she's so guilty because because she you know she thinks that what she's responsible for will being in the upside down that that she's um it's her fault and she can't or it takes her a long time to accept actually it's the lead scientist the guy she calls papa that is it's his fault. And this is so common, particularly in female trauma survivors. Uh, you know, the experience of rape, the instinct of society is to say, we shouldn't be walking down the street on your own, like, you shouldn't be wearing that skirt, should you? Mm. Actually, we blame trauma survivors quite quite quickly. And that only serves to, to reinforce um, an, a sense of um, a kind of internalised blaming of the self. Um, so she um, feels out of control, particularly when, you know, she's talking about the, the, the kind of powers that Eleven has. Um, and so the guilt kind of helps her get a tight grip on the thing that caused the trauma. And to say, if I hold on really tightly to this, I'm so guilty, I, therefore I won't be able to do it again, I won't be able to hurt somebody again. Um, so Eleven, it's actually a really complicated depiction of guilt and shame. Um, that you see her gradually coming coming to deal with over the course of the series. So I think you see some small hints of recovery mm. with Eleven. And again, it's demonstrating that this is a long process. It's not it's not an easy fix. You don't get a happy ending at the end of season one. You get a pile of egos and you're left wondering if she's still <laughs> up. Um, but she starts to make connections with the boys. She starts to trust them. She starts to have some fun with them to be like a normal 11 year old 
Um, she starts to understand what the real kind of connection is between her actions and the consequences. You see her being able to use her powers in a helpful way rather than in a um, out of control kind of release of fury kind of way. Um, and she's not frightened of herself so much. So, um, so the scene that I, I think does the best of this is um, towards the end where Elle says she will go back into the Upside Down to help Joyce and Hopper work out where Will is mm-hmm. so that they can go and get her. So if you remember rightly, they fill up the padding pool in the school gym and they yeah. make it into like a, a, a flotation tank and put her in it. And she is terrified, but she does it. And when she goes in there, she you see the fear, the terror. Um, she starts to really panic. She gets really, really um, anxious and upset. And then you can hear Joyce's voice saying, don't worry, honey, I'm here. Mm. You're okay. And that soothes her. She's able then to, to continue doing what she wanted to do. And she comes back out of, of the Upside Down um, safely. And I think that you're okay that Joyce says is is it's both the hardest thing for survivors to learn you are okay um and yet it's also the most important thing so we often talk about trauma as being or ptsd as being the the point in a an experience where things that were valid adaptations in the past persist into the present so if you're a soldier and you're on the on the battlefield then a heightened state of awareness, you know, um, not sleeping deeply, but always sleeping really on edge, mm. uh, being constantly aware of who's around you, knowing who's safe, who isn't safe. They're things that keep you alive. They're good things for the battlefield. They're not good things for the home. No. So, so PTSD is, you know, when this, what were valid adaptations persist and you don't know that actually you're okay. Mm-hmm. So I Elle does this um, brilliant depiction of someone learning that they are okay. And again, it's a long process, but uh, Stranger Things, I think, does a suspiciously good job at demonstrating what that might start to look like for someone that's experienced trauma. There's also a lot of different depictions of trauma, isn't there? Because the reason why I brought it up at the beginning is because I actually thought you were going to talk more about Joyce. Because I think there's the traumatised mother who doesn't believe uh, nobody believes her especially uh with will all at the beginning of season one like i found that quite painful to watch because winona Ryder was so believable really good depiction of what a woman's experience of trauma is like she is not believed nobody wants to take her seriously she's that crazy woman you know who you know she's a single mother on her own she's working class why, you know, why should we believe? We're not wasting our resources on her. It's, it's actually, again, it's a really authentic depiction of, of what, not necessarily what trauma looks like, but what how it's experienced in a yeah. wider community. That's exactly what I would say. Like the, I, I felt it. I felt anxious watching yeah. the depiction. And then I'm so happy that you brought up that interaction between the two characters because I was thinking about all the other relations that, relationships that Eleven has. And I'd forgotten about her relationship with Joyce, which is really nice because she hasn't had a mother figure. She's had a father figure. And then with Hopper, she has a, another father figure. Um, and with Will, she nearly has the kissing incident, which I was like really annoyed by because I really thought we might be able to have um, kids, of t- young teenage kids who were just friends. 
the same thing happens in it where there seems to be a sexual element with the one girl and um i'm just really sad about that but um yeah. they didn't go too far with 11 and it, and it's completely okay because there's burgeoning sexuality i get that that's part of something and the older teenagers obviously in it are having all of those you know <laughs> sleeping with each other and all of that but um i I like the interactions between Eleven and Will and with Hopper and learning to trust men again without there having to be a sexual element. That's the kind of... She, she's a child, so I suppose, you know, they have to do that. But that's almost the the opposite of what we saw in Thelma and Louise and Prodigal. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's interesting, as you were saying that, I was thinking, and Hopper obviously has lost his daughter, hasn't mm. he? He's experience Toronto we're not talking particularly about blokes experience of Toronto. no we should talk about everybody because I think that um so, uh, you know he's he again recovery for him is about reconnecting you know season two he's he's better because he's connected with Elle and because he's connected with Joyce and you know there's a lovely scene with them at the end of season two when they're both waiting outside the prom for the kids having a smoke yeah <laughs> it's not sexual, you know, because obviously she's, um, uh, is it Bob has been eaten alive? I forget <laughs> what his character is, yes, but, um, uh, Sean. Sean. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and she, oh, I, I Samwise, Samwise Ganji. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. Poor, um, it's, it's just such a terrifying, um, scene, you know, because he so nearly makes it to the door. Yeah. I'm totally distracted now, but I love strange things. I just thought, <laughs> It was just such brilliant storytelling, and and it was only when I started thinking about Elle as a depiction of trauma, I was thinking actually it's just the whole story is about trauma. Mm. Um, you know, Will. Um, oh my God, he, the trauma he experiences! Goodness well, me! That scene at the end of season one yeah. where he goes out off from the dinner table and vomits up the slugs and has this flashback, <laughs> and then comes and sits back down and pretends everything's normal. <laughs> he doesn't want to upset his mum. You know, that kind of. Um, it's, it's only when he starts to engage with the um, what what's happening to him that, that there starts to be a process of kind of working out how to recover from it. Um, this is another thing that's really important with discussing all of these issues as they're depicted on screen, is that this shouldn't be just a conversation about women. It should always be a focus because we are the gender that has the shortest shrift. Um, in terms of on-screen depictions and also, you know, working in an industry. But what's really important to me and what I've learned from this podcast is that gender norms cut both ways. You know, Stranger Things is also good at putting up those stereotypes with Hopper and maybe with Will, as you've just pointed out, about being having a stiff upper lip and dealing with your trauma with a random act of violence, like smashing a mirror or shouting at someone. As if that's the only possible way that a man can experience uh, PTSD or anxiety. And so what's interesting then about Hopper in that is that you do see him kind of going through that process. So, you know, at the beginning, he's, I think the opening scene, he's drunk. <laughs> in his pants on his, on his balcony, isn't he? I think I remember or something like that. He's really messed up and, and it's, it's because of the loss of his daughter and the subsequent breakdown of I can only assume I think the subsequent breakdown of his marriage and Hopper does a lot better when he starts to connect with people and that you know mum is a girly trait uh, mm. again it's that gender cuts both ways actually when we when we say actually this is what trauma recovery looks like it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman 
or non-binary, it, it, this is what it has to be, and it's harder for blokes because they're taught not to have those conversations. Mm. Actually, you have to be able to have them in order to recover. You cannot um, go through a process of post-traumatic remaking and make any kind of progress if you're not willing to talk to at least one other person about what's happened to you. This will keep it dark for you, just like in your bathtub. You're a very brave girl. You know that, don't you? Everything you're doing. Thank you. Listen. I am going to be there with you the whole time. And if it ever gets too scary in, in that place, you just let me know, okay? why the podcast is called Beyond Bechdel is because I use the Bechdel test as a basis uh, for analysing representation uh, of female characters. But um, sometimes I find that if I say, oh, a film fails the Bechdel test, it's as if I'm throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And it seems to me that in a lot of the um, discussions we've had today and that the TV shows that we've mentioned, there seems to be a male-female dynamic. I don't know to what extent there are a lot of depictions of a film passing the Bechdel test or a TV show passing the Bechdel test where two women are discussing the trauma. Um, I might be putting you on the spot there. <laughs> Children were buried in, 
and they they kneel down on the ground and put their hands on the ground together and that's part of her post-traumatic remaking actually it's understanding um, and coming to terms with the death of her children and there's nothing she could do that's a perfect example of the narrative the narrative can't be exactly as you want it to be but if you can um, ascribe a place or something to put it all in then she can have it i didn't see that episode it sounds really good although it sounds like i would cry a lot <laughs> the ones you mentioned, it, all of them sound particularly traumatic as a viewer. I remember one about the Somalian um, female uh, genital mutilation, and, and a woman was uh, in the UK, and she was she was escaping from uh, from that, and um, uh, she didn't know if she could get pregnant. And they were all I, I find to call the midwife so educational, uh, both on physical and uh, psychological trauma, because there were things yeah. I was like, these are just things that that. Uh, especially something like um, that issue is that it's come to the forefront now and we know about it now and I think naively I probably thought that people weren't doing it before yeah, and, yeah. but then Call the Midwife puts it in a, um, a different time zone and makes you realise that historically women have been suffering all of these traumatic events in relation to having children something which is a biological imperative um, for years and years yeah, and I think uh, Call the Midwife gets gets knocked a lot, but actually, it's one of the one of the best depictions of women on on television, like consistently over the last you know decade or so. Um, it's not shied away from doing uh, dealing with kind of lesbian relationships and how that was perceived. Um, you know, abortions and miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies and getting pregnant from rape and it it it, it does a brilliant job at. at taking women's experience really seriously, whatever that experience is. Mm. Um, um, I'm, a, I'm a theologian, so my work at Durham University is part of the theology department there. Um, and I think Call the Midwife is one of the best, uh, consistently good examples of Christianity on television. Yeah. You know, it, it's not judgmental, actually. It's uh, people loving loving their neighbours, loving each other, and um, putting that first. You know, you, whenever in Call the Midwife somebody judges, uh, they never the episode never ends like that with them judging you know they mm. always come to a place of understanding and compassion and connection with the other and I don't think there's many examples of TV that do that I mean it's got its problems obviously but um, it's one I go back to frequently I think it's brilliant I completely agree and I think that the thing I like the most about it is that you cannot have a man portray these characters so all the guys in that are, are peripheral characters. You know, the husbands, um, they're always sent out of the room to, <laughs> the woman's in labour. They they're not there. Um, they're, they're on the edges of the stories. And even if the story's about, you know, a woman being beaten by a husband or, um, you know, where the, the male character just drive the story forward, they're never, they're never a central figure, actually. It's a really interesting kind of shift mm. in in the lens that they use to tell these stories. Exactly. It's also testament to the writing because nine times out of ten, you would have a show that focuses on the doctor. And there have been shows. You can always make the doctor or the you know the primary medical professional uh, the the key character in the show. And I think when you watch Call the Midwife, the doctors are important in the job that they do, but it has been written in a way that they don't have to be central the yeah. story they're only one part of the process which is the truth that's the the really strange thing about this this whitewashing of history to negate women's roles because a primarily male production 
environment would see that this isn't as interesting and also wouldn't know. I think that something that's so important with Jessica Jones, with Call the Midwife, and all of these things where uh, we are talking about a specifically female traumatic experience, is that you have to get someone who's been through the experience or understands it to be part of the production. And that's how you make something that's legitimate as well as entertaining. Yeah, and, and the beauty, I guess, of Call the Midwife is that, you know, many of those experiences are just normal everyday experiences. Yeah. Women get pregnant, women give birth, women lose babies, women get sick. You know, every every woman can tell one of those stories usually. And, and But when, when you have a, a production that's just totally male-driven, those stories are, are just completely lost. None of this is new. Women have always been raped. Women have always lost children women have always experienced miscarriage and um, you know men have always been sent out to battle from from the earliest times it's just that you know there are particular ways of framing the stories that make one person's trauma more uh, valuable more interesting or more prominent than than the other person we had a certain amount of fun and games with cervix and vagina but all in all i think we did quite well well that I don't think is, is still not depicted well enough today just going on for pregnancy is periods I think that there is a, a, a type of trauma associated with that whether it's problems whether it's having them when you're a teenager and um, I don't know if you ever do this or whether it's just me and I'm a bit strange but whenever I watch something and it has a woman who's involved in something and she's at a certain age where she probably will start her period for example, the Hunger Games. I'm like, nobody talks about all these female characters having their period because that would interfere with so many things. And I'm always like, what period protection are they using? Am I mad to think that? But I still think that's something that we're not talking about enough and should be should be brought in. But I think it's because it's this idea that we don't want to talk about the female body and all the strangeness that that men don't understand or male viewers or producers don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I go back to call Midwife and say uh, that's probably one of the few shows where I think I have seen periods depicted or at least talked about yes. on, on TV. Um, yeah, I, I don't think you're alone. I um, probably do a similar thing with like, well, nobody's been to the toilet. And then I'm <laughs> yes, so you're right. That, that affects everybody, but I think I'm particularly interested in like, you know, when you when you have your period as a teenager for the first time, it is something that I think is a momentous moment in a woman's life. And having to deal with that, like The Walking Dead. Again, that's a show that's obsessed with blood, yet it doesn't talk about... They talk about contraception and, ma and having babies. They don't ever talk about the women's periods. I would just love a scene of two women just talking about what can we get from this store before the zombies get us. Let's get some tampons. Uh, yeah, I think um, I was thinking about A Quiet Place. Yes, yes yeah. I loved that film. Absolutely love that film. Um, and I think, uh, well, she, obviously she's pregnant, so she's not having periods, but um, Emily Blunt does such a great job at being a woman in a woman's body in a really real way in that film. Mm. Um, you know, the, I think the it's birthing the scenes, even though she can't say anything, were yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, it's incredible. I think that scene of her going into labour in the bathtub, mm. one of, and you know, and then he comes up the stairs later and sees the blood in the bathtub. It's, it's just. I mean, it's 
it's not sanitised in any way, shape or form, but it, it's harrowing. I mean, it's terrifying. And that's the problem with a quiet place is that, that like, I don't want to uh, slag off the film when it did such a brilliant job. And I think Krasinski's direction is, is really good. But the strange parameters of that film in terms of where they can and can't make noise and where it's shown... Uh, afterwards, like, does she not, does she step on the, is that when she steps on the nail? And then the baby doesn't seem to cry after being born, and I'm like, oh, you've set yourself up <laughs> for issues here with like, what you can and can't control. I think that um, you didn't, yeah, you saw that messiness, yeah, in, in, in the bath, and I think that was very clever because I was waiting when I was watching it thinking, there's going to be a baby crying soon. There's going to be a baby crying. How are they going to do it? Did she put that hand over the baby's mouth? And that almost added to, like, my experience of the stress yeah. of the scene. Doesn't she end up in the basement behind the kind of pouring water when yes. the baby's back and then the, And then the baby does cry, yes. But I'm thinking, how convenient that that was the only time. But that's probably a bit unfair. It's a film. <laughs> Oh yeah, so uh, John Krasinski, which ironically has had two children with Emily Blunt, so must yes. know what children sound like and what women sound like. But um, yeah, I thought that film was brilliant. Um, not, it's not really about trauma at all. It's just one of the ones that I really liked. Recently. Well, I don't, I don't know. Could you? That, you know, she, um, they have a child that's like murdered in front of them at the beginning of the film. I could, I think, a quite place is a traumatic experience for both the characters and the viewers. of trauma I think you're absolutely right that's um, a subject that needs discussing uh, we probably have to have another hour long you never know people might listen um, can I ask your thoughts on the Bechdel test I like it I find myself mentally performing it on lots of things that I want <laughs> however I know that there are a number of films that I love that do not pass the Bechdel test so, um, so for me I think the Bechdel test is really important because I think it's a barometer of where we are in terms of gender representation mm. and and as a beginning point in stories because because let's be honest that two women just talking to each other about something that isn't a bloke isn't it's not storytelling is no. it it's it's the beginning it of would be in my period melodrama in three acts oh, but yeah. um yeah. yeah do you want to mention any of these films that don't pass oh so okay don't judge me but one of my all time <laughs> No, I'm is... asking you so I can judge you. <laughs> One of my all-time favourite films is Spy Game. Oh, wow. Pitt. There's a Brad Pitt theme here. I know, it's weird, isn't it? And actually, it's more about Robert Redford. Okay. I like him old and craggy. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that here at Beyond Red. That's absolutely fine. Um, oh, that, again, but that's... um. Sometimes I do think you can have special dispensation where it's about two particular characters who have, or, or more than, who happen to be male. So yeah, yeah, 
and um, and I find the interesting. I find the female character in it particularly irritating. She's she's um, well, I can't even remember t- who it is, so that says it all. Isn't it? Um, she uh, plays the aid worker who's doing anything she can to keep the uh, refugee camp and gets kidnapped yeah. in a prison. Brad Pitt goes to rescue her. Yeah, sounds like a fridging to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I find the relationship between Robert Redford and Brad Pitt is so powerful in that film. And that actually, at the end of it, Robert Redford gives up everything that he has so diligently saved in mm. order to rescue Brad Pitt. And, um, and, and just drives off, you know, there's no kind of sense of them coming together at the end. There's no real, like, happy ending. Oh, you rescued me. That Thanks so much. Um, it's just kind of left hanging. And I felt mm. like, gosh, that's probably quite a real depiction of that kind of relationship. Yeah. Uh, but the other one that I really like is Spotlight, which yeah. I think is brilliant. But actually, you can, I think it, it almost passed the Bechdel test because there's one scene where yeah. Rachel McAdams' character talks to her nana um about the article yes it does it does because it's not technically it is sort of about men but it's yeah it's actually about the it's about the actual events in the paper so yeah i would like to talk about that i'm really glad you've mentioned it i had a feeling that i would find it again quite traumatizing now i have to say i didn't like it as as much as other people have and maybe you can you know tell me why i'm wrong in this opinion because i felt like all of the journalists didn't seem as personally affected by everything. I think the direction of the film, and it might be that this is exactly what all of these people are like, because I know it's real life journalists that they're based on. But I didn't feel like there was a lot of tender, loving care used. I felt like everyone was so keen to tell the story and tell it factually. And a lot of the time those stories did speak for themselves. You know, I cried in it multiple times. But um, I wanted more hugging from people but they i know they had to keep their journalistic credibility but um i actually there's only one scene where mark ruffalo like kind of lets rip and he doesn't even really do that and i think that um you saw more shouting in a film like all the president's men talking about your favorite robert redford uh about watergate than you did about this unbelievable true story about these priests and, and the, the Catholic uh, Church network. Did, yeah. did, did you see my point? Or? Yeah. I think, and I think that's possibly one of the reasons why I, I quite liked it, is actually I went huh? in expecting it to be... Um, more emotional? More emotional, really pulling at my heartstrings, um, really telling me all of the detail. I was... I didn't know what to expect, and I was, I think, expecting, you know, flashback scenes, and because that's that they're quite. That's always how it happens, yeah. And this is probably why it won because it it is something new. I agree. Yeah, I think uh, I think one of the things that I really liked about it is that it's really measured, and it's really um, uh, it's just it's telling. It's just telling a story. It's telling a story of the telling of stories, which um, which I think is an interesting trait in and of itself. Um, so. I loved. I well, I have to confess, I've probably watched it five or six times wow. in the last. Um, and again, I think it's the relationships between the characters. I think one of the key scenes for me is when one of the journalists realizes that one of the priest's houses is around the corner from his house. Yes. The um, they do a really good job at telling the 
showing the trauma survivors um, and there's that sense I think that they portray really well of um, the survivors what need to make a gift out of their trauma because it's happened to them it cannot happen to anybody else mm. and that is that it's that third stage of trauma recovery some kind of reconnection which says it's more important that I tell this story and prosecute this case you know so you see the um, I can't remember the name of the actor who's playing the the, the lawyer who's uh, representing Stanley like, Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci, yeah. Um, you know those scenes with his clients where they are, are mortified at having to say out loud. They were some of the most traumatic parts for me personally. Very very affecting. Um, and so sorry, they go on. Demonstrate trauma really well. You know that they felt really authentic scenes. I guess, again, it comes back to probably my, my personal interest. So I'm a theologian. Um, I was raised in the Catholic Church. Um, so I was interested and I understood some of the kind of hierarchical authoritarian things that were happening in, from the Catholic Church's perspective. Yeah. Uh, but the the other thing that is that I just, I love journalism, journalism films. Yeah. I love them about journalists and it seems very authentic definitely um yeah. i just not... didn't want any minimum minimalization of what this was because i do feel like there was this pull push pull between reenacting the story to to show truthfully how it happens like the kind of the looking through files and you know the kind of the dirgy boring part of it but still making it interesting but the abject horror of what they were revealing. Yeah, and I wonder if that's the only way you can tell that story and have it reach as many people as it did. Is so to have a distance. Yeah. Um, I um, said to my mum after I saw the film, I was like, oh my goodness, it was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. I can't recommend it enough. And when I explained, oh, it's not, it's not about, it's about the newspaper and the journalists finding out it's not quite so much about the graphic details of the horrific abuse, although, of course, they're there. And when I said that to her, she went, oh, yeah, maybe I'll go and see it then. So knowing that she wasn't going to have to sit through something that was so traumatising to watch, mm. that's what I talking about earlier, made it perhaps a story that was told more widely. we got to go with this now. No, I'm not going to rush this story, Mike. We don't have a choice, Robbie. Mike. What? Why, why are we hesitating? Barron told us to get law. This is law. Barron told us to get the system. We need the full scope. That's the only thing that will put an end to this. Then let's take it up to Ben. Let him decide. We'll take it to Ben when I say it's time. It's time, Robbie. It's time. They knew, and they let it happen to kids. Okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. We have learned that... As awful as trauma is, it can be used to both help the survivors and to educate and help us as viewers. And so therefore, with films like Spotlight, something positive can come out of trauma. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, that's what motivates the work that, that I do is that the more we talk about it, the more people with trauma talk about what they've experienced the more they're able to reconnect with society and, and the better we are, the better and more honest we are about mental health issues, which, you know, affect so many of us.
Absolutely. Karen, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Dr. Karen O'Donnell. We have put some notes on her book about trauma and her webpage in the show notes. And you can also find her on Twitter at KMR O'Donnell. The music playing us in and out is from Spotlight, composed by Howard Shaw. Until next time.